My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Anatoly Carlin. He is a blogger, an intelligence researcher, a man with powerful takes, as is the title of his Substack, and a Russian repatriate. Welcome, Anatoly. Okay. Uh, th- thank you for having me on your show. Looking forward to this. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to have you on. Um, I've been following you for, for a long time. You are one of the, the ur spicy posters. You have very powerful takes and I recommend that people should, should go through your back catalog. Uh, you even have like a, a greatest hits, uh, hits of posts on your website. So I think people should go there maybe first. Um, but uh, you're also our man in Russia now. Um, and you are a Russian repatriate, someone who's been in the West, but then, you know, fought thought about it and went back to Russia, uh, which is an interesting uh, position to be in because uh, there's a lot of people who decide the other way. They want to stay in the West. Uh, and I feel like this is um, this is kind of the conflict, the, the, the mental uh, conflict that we're in uh, between people who would like to go back to Russia and people who would rather stay in the West. Um, I mean, what, what drove you personally to return back to Russia? Uh, well, personally, I've always identified as Russian, quite frankly. Uh, so, I mean, uh, my parents emigrated to the West when I was six, but uh, I spent 10 years, a decade in Britain, and then another decade in the US, plus minus a few years. Um, <clears throat> so uh, perhaps if I'd uh, uh, simply spent all of that time in, 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 in the US, instead of uh, like traveling back and forth, perhaps my identity would have indeed become uh, rooted as an American. Uh, but uh, uh, because of that mishmash of travel, I retained my Russian identity. And frankly, I I identify as a Russian. So uh, it seems pretty uh, illogical and uh, to some extent cringe, I suppose, to uh, uh, sort of be a pro-Russian partisan while uh, uh, living in the West instead of uh, voting with your own uh, boots, essentially. Uh, So yes, uh, this is what I, uh, uh, one of the main considerations that that incentivized me to go back to Russia. Uh, the other one is just that I like it here. Um, I mean, it's got all the amenities that uh, uh, that the West has uh, the, and uh, uh, doesn't have uh, some of the dysfunctions, although it does have some dysfunctions of its specific to it. But overall, uh, I, I, I um, prefer this balance. Yeah, I mean, I've I've returned back to Romania as well, so I kind of understand it. Romania's not Russia, but it's probably more like Russia than it is like the UK. <laughs> and for the same, I think, uh, in, in some t- same types of dysfunction that I was seeing in living in London. And I mean, I've mentioned this on this podcast probably too many times, but you know, urban crime really, it really does kind of uh, get a bit, <laughs> a bit iffy after a while. Um, is, is that part of uh, of your reasoning to to return as well? Uh, well, yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Uh, I, I, w- I was actually in Romania for a couple of weeks uh, uh, back in 2018. I don't know if you saw that post, uh, but uh, you can read and see my, my see my impressions. No, no, but I will go back to, to see it. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Okay, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I totally agree with this. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, there's... Um, <clears throat> Uh, in, in terms of uh, crime, there's, there's uh, less of it in urban areas. I mean, well, I mean, adjusting for one uh, particular uh, problematic minority in the mania. But uh, uh, but yeah, overall, it's uh, pretty pleasant and uh, stuck me as a pretty pleasant and uh, bucolic uh, uh, country. I love uh, bucolic. That's that's a good uh, adjective. I will I will appropriate that. I'll I'll describe Romania as bucolic. Uh, it's bucolic to me, especially because I I live in in like a small town in Transylvania, and it's it's just very friendly. Like there is no crime here, and also because we've exported a lot of crime, <laughs> I have to say, because all the yes. criminal elements. Like, why would they hang around here <laughs> with the poor people? They can now go, you know, open borders, uh, go and uh, go and get more money somewhere else. I mean, you know. 
I'm, I'm happy about that personally, just because of my situation. Um, because you're our man in Russia and you seem to be comfortable there in this den of, of, of disaster, you know, and in the bowels of hell, terrible place, apparently. Um, is, is Putin insane? Is he, is he someone who is unhinged? Uh, because that's, uh, you know, one of the bigger stories coming out here and, uh, people trying to explain the situation say, okay, this is, this is the act of someone who's driven, driven mad either by disease or driven, uh, driven, you know, his ego is being pressured by the fact that he's going to die or what, what is Putin's state from the inside? Well, I mean, I don't have an insight to his state, but what I can, uh, I, what I can observe is that people have been psychoanalyzing and diagnosing Putin for at least the past decade. I mean, there was a, a subcom of the spine uh, study like a decade ago. Uh, there's various uh, speculations about Parkinson's. I think actually this is uh, highly unlikely. Like so, I mean, if, even if you actually look at uh, Putin's biography, his mother, his father, and his grandfather, who happened to be Lenin's cook, uh, they all lived to their late eighties or nineties. And his uh, relatives, uh, who died natural deaths, they uh, uh, also tended to be very long lived. So actually, my sort of like uh, random bet is that uh, Putin will live a very long time, possibly even a uh, uh, hundred years. Uh, don't exclude that. So no, I don't. I don't think there's any anything particularly wrong about Putin. Uh, uh, what uh, uh, the point I made in my uh, in my article on this, uh, where I sort of uh, predicted that this would happen, uh, the the gathering of the Russian lands, is that there were uh, several specific reasons why uh, uh, why invading Ukraine is um, uh, is um, is isn't an irrational decision. Uh, from a sort of uh, uh, power perspective, uh, and uh, this is uh, there were a number of, of points I made. Uh, one of them is simply that there was a window of opportunity, uh, probably the best one and the last one uh, that she would ever have after 2014, uh, because uh, Ukraine was modernizing its military, and uh, the um, uh, it was also consolidating its uh, national identity. So, for instance, the language instruction was. Uh, uh, was uh, phased out across Ukraine uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, so, uh, and at the same time, China's relative power relative to the West has been increasing. So it's much bigger now than in 2014. And moreover, its ties to the West have been fraying <coughs> uh, in something I call the Great Bification. Uh, so, uh, uh, basically, China more advanced, uh, more so. There's, Russia has more options essentially now. Uh, 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 even if, even if, like the West tries to close all its doors, uh, which to a large extent is impractical, uh, because something like ten percent of the world's critical strategic resources uh, come from Russia. And uh, the uh, the other reason, of course, is that uh, I do think that uh, uh, Putin is uh, 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 buys into the ideology uh, propounded by Russian thinkers such as Ivan Ilyin and Solzhenitsyn. <clears throat> That there is an, a, a big Russian people that encompasses not just uh, uh, Ruski, but also uh, Ukrainians and Belarusians, uh, the triunic uh, theory of Russian nationality, uh, which was uh, what was uh, uh, the, offici the official ideology of the late Russian Empire. And uh, I think that uh, uh, the ideology of the Russian state has basically returned to that, uh, to that either. And uh, uh, from, from the perspective of that ideology, uh, this is obviously fully, uh, fully logical and in line with it. Okay, so this is a, a essentially ideological move. This is your um, instinct about about this. I, I think it's 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 uh, it's it's um, an ideological move uh, in in relation to this. I think it's a. Uh, I think the it's also a. Uh, it's driven by security considerations as well. So, uh, well, the sort of most frequently mentioned reason, uh, NATO expansion. I mean, obviously, that's not an irrelevance, uh, complete irrelevance. Uh, it's uh, the, there's also other other uh, power considerations. Uh, so. Um, um, uh, the Ukraine has uh, territorial detentions, understandable ones, obviously, not just on the Donbass republics, but on Crimea. And if its military power is going to be steadily rising over the next decade and two uh, with Western support, uh, because Ukraine is a very poor country, but uh, if it's uh, going to be uh, integ integrating uh, into the EU, then uh, it will have resources pumped into it and it will steadily present a uh, 
create a military threat uh, to those regions, uh, so um, which would force uh, Russia to uh, uh, to um, devote a greater percentage of its uh, uh, internal resources to countering it. So, what I, I, I think that for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, like the decision makers around Putin, which is basically Putin himself and uh, a narrow circle of security men around him, uh, such as Petrushov, Sechin, and so on, they looked at the uh, situation and at other uh, trends and uh, uh, in in line with uh, uh, and uh, decided to act now instead of uh, instead of uh, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, reminiscing about lost opportunities uh, in half a decade or a decade's time. And you you were one of the few people who um, correctly predicted that there will be war and there will be war soon. Um, this, you know, uh, it, it took me by surprise, but also I wasn't really observing the region. I, I know not much about Russia. Um, I'm I'm also kind of been lulled in by the by the, the era of peace in the region. You know, we thought that uh, Kosovo was the last time we, you hear about uh, about issues in the region. But now I'm again in a, you know, eight hour drive away from the nearest theater of war. Um, you know, it's 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 a bit unnerving. For this region, uh, but do you think that uh, Putin, you know, he's being attributed all sorts of imperial aspirations now? Do you think he, his intentions go beyond Ukraine's borders? Um, I think uh, that uh, in line with uh, with his article, which he uh, wrote uh, in the middle of last year, and which I keep recommending people to write, uh, that the uh, uh, that w- what he sees as the Russia's natural borders is. Uh, uh, Ukraine, um, or at least Novorossiya, and Belarus. I don't. Uh, I don't believe it's likely that, uh, or, or indeed very plausible, that he would expand further. Because I mean, even historically, uh, I mean, even leaving issues of NATO aside, all of these uh, countries were very uh, sort of destructive to the Russian Empire. And I mean, he knows his history uh, that uh, the very large sort of percentage, for understandable reasons, of subversives in the Russian Empire were uh, ethnic Poles and Bolts, for instance. Uh, so the um, the person who funneled much of the uh, uh, German general staff's money to fund the Bolsheviks in 1917 uh, was, for instance, say, an ethnic Estonian. So uh, I mean, I mean, uh, in trying to integrate those people, like even even like uh, questions of national self determination aside, I mean, it doesn't doesn't really make sense even from uh, the point of view of uh, long term self interest. So, no, I think my firm prediction is that uh, um, there won't be anything beyond uh, Transnistria uh, at the furthest west. Okay. But um, a large population of, of Ukrainians, and I guess probably a large population of, of Moldovans, though I have not surveyed them, uh, would rather be under the sphere of influence of the West at this point. Um, how does that mesh with this aspiration of kind of reuniting the Russian lands? I mean, what what if they're unwilling? <laughs> what uh, how, how does one uh, unite someone who does not want to be united, especially if the borders are still open? Well, I mean, I think that people, I mean, the, the, obviously the open borders thing is a... Uh, major consideration because uh, people who are deeply dissatisfied with the state of affairs uh, will have the option of uh, simply emigrating uh, as opposed to engaging in insurgency and so on. Uh, That's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is that I think uh, many people underestimate the extent to which popular opinion is malleable. Uh, I mean, if you look at opinion polls in Ukraine before the Euromaidan, it was basically 50-50 in favor of either the EU or the Eurasian Union. It was the European Union which made this an either-or uh, kind of thing. And since Kiev uh, happened to be uh, especially pro-European, uh, disproportionately pro-European, uh, well, I mean, the revolutions and so forth, they decided in capital cities. And uh, yes, since then, uh, obviously, uh, in the eight years of uh, war in the Donbass and uh, uh, propaganda, uh, yes, uh, Ukrainians have become, for understandable reasons, uh, much more uh, less enthusiastic about Russia. And to the contrary, people in Crimea and uh, in the Donbass, they have uh, instead become very, very pro-Russian. So, I mean, some of the best fighting has actually been done by the uh, Dernard armed forces. So it's clearly people who uh, believe in what they're fighting for. It's not the sort of like a fake, uh, fake republics that uh, that they're portrayed as, in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, in I, I, I in bearing this in mind, I uh, I think this is plausible. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't support uh, going into Moldova because there's no reason, and uh, I mean, Moldovans are basically Romanians. 
Uh, so, uh, I mean, if, if I was going to withdraw European borders, I would frankly assign Moldova minus Transnistria to, to Romania along with that. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the Romanians, they had a pretty, pretty successful 20th century, I would say, territorial-wise. Territorial uh, because, uh, yeah, I mean, you got yeah, Transylvania and then Bukovina, right? Uh, and only Bessarabia is, is, is still missing from the sort of like Romanian core territories. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people in the in the U.S., uh, they scarcely imagine how... Um, how fragmented this this region was until recently. I mean, most of my neighbors here and where I live are Hungarians. This used to be part of Hungary, and almost almost in living memory of of, of some people. Uh, the administration this area looks completely different from other areas. It's bilingual, like you can see, everything is both in Hungarian and in Romanian. Um, this is the case in many areas of Romania. There's even like a huge uh, Hungarian enclave at the center of Romania. Uh, there's like a three commi committee area that, you know, people can't even believe that a lot of people there don't even speak Romanian, but they're essentially surrounded by Romania on all sides. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a different type of existence. There's not, you know, even America is extremely homogenous compared to this, even if it's like a federalized, uh, uh, country. These are different ethnicity, different people all living together. Um, and if you look at what happened in Yugoslavia, there is some meshing that can happen, but up to a point. Um, and I feel like that's that's probably what's going on in Ukraine as well. There's, there's some very powerful forces in the middle of the country. This is not just, uh, you know, Russia deciding it wants to annex an, another country that's completely, you know, free of Russian influence, completely autonomous, completely homogenous in itself. Um, that's Probably not the case. Um, so um, I, I also wanted to ask you about um, your prediction also included, I think, an, an estimation that this this war won't take long. So this will be a kind of a, a fast evolution. Um, it's probably going to be a month in next week. Um, it's, it's not very fast, but it could still be quite fast in terms of in terms of how long wars wars take. Um, with the information that you have now, how would you uh, recalibrate that prediction? Like, what what do you see happening in the next I don't know month weeks? Uh, yes, I, well, I mean, I think that the uh, uh, the Ukrainian forces in the Donbass are going to be surrounded, uh, and uh, I mean the uh, logistics logistics so supply routes uh, to the Donbass are being interdicted at a rapid date. So. I don't see them uh, lasting past a couple of weeks, and probably Mariupol in particular will fall in a matter of days. And uh, if once that is completed, uh, I mean, uh, a very large percentage of, uh, of Ukraine's combat-capable troops are, for obvious reasons, concentrated in the past. And uh, once, uh, uh, once that happens, a lot of them are going to be freed up. Uh, to continue to uh, Kharkov and Nyepetovsk. I did, uh, obviously, uh, this was actually a, an embarrassingly bad prediction, of course. I mean, I, uh, that's an L on my part. Uh, for what it's worth, I uh, uh, underestimated the uh, uh, sort of combat effectiveness of Ukrainian troops and uh, uh, probably overestimated uh, the... Uh, I mean, it really, uh, it was a delusion, I think, to a substantial extent shared by the Russian general staff because uh, uh, the initial waves that were sent into Ukraine, they were pretty modest. I mean, there was almost the impression that uh, uh, they could uh, roll into Kiev and hoist up their flag and uh, just take it over. So obviously the uh, intelligence services dropped the ball in a cardinal way. Uh, there were a lot of expectations that a lot of Ukrainian Slavics would turn code, which didn't really happen. The uh, shock and door strategy, uh, which uh, which was sort of like uh, uh, implemented at the beginning, it uh, completely failed. Uh, so now we have a more conventional campaign. Uh, but uh, I don't I don't expect this to change the ultimate results because if you I mean more, most wars are predictable. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, telling uh, uh, the military assets they have at their disposal and uh, calculating combat effectiveness ratios. And uh, it's really hard to see how Russia can can fail to, to win this. It's it's sort of like uh, when Azerbaijan went to war with Armenia a couple of years ago. Uh, the results were also clear after a couple of days, even if it took uh, 44 days uh, for it to play out. Uh, basically, the Russians have uh, near total air superiority. Uh, the uh, anti-air defense systems uh, of Ukraine have been suppressed, so that's a huge deal. Uh, Russian artillery uh, is a uh, massive, massive advantage in uh, artillery firepower. 
so this uh, allows uh, allows logistics doubts and so on. Uh, any forces in the open to be interdicted and uh, destroyed. And uh, Ukraine doesn't really have any particular answers to, the, uh, answers to that. I mean, yes, you can supply N-laws and uh, javelins and so on, which uh, a lot of it is made in, in the West for obvious reasons. But uh, uh, these aren't things that win wars. They're kind of things that uh, that can have supplied out and uh, sort of slow down the campaign, but they're not uh, the kinds of weapons that uh, can eke out a victory. Mm-hmm. So you would also imagine that this will take maybe weeks or months, but not, it's not going to be a, a, a very long conflict. Yeah, I mean, I now, I now expect, I mean, to, to adjust the timelines, um, which which I think is it's reasonable to do. I think the uh, uh, Donbass uh, will essentially be uh, be resolved uh, within two weeks, and uh, then uh, uh, everything east of the Dnieper uh, in in April. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the, about the sanctions uh, and about kind of this um, this pro- policy of containment, where um, almost it, it seems like almost like Russia decided to to kind of sanction itself. It says, "Okay, we're, we're not only are you not taking these X uh, uh, amount of uh, you know oil or, or gas, uh, we're not giving it." <laughs> so, uh, how how does it feel um, on the ground to be subject to the sanctions? Do you feel it personally, or uh, what, what's the effect? Mm, yeah, the virgin sanctions versus the Chad self-sanctions, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, speaking concretely about myself, uh, the only thing I noticed is that I've had to switch from Google Pay and MasterCard uh, from my bank to our domestic system, which is called Mir. Uh, so, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is an important note. Uh, all of these sort of like big tech that is progressively getting kicked out of Russia. Which I don't think is uh, is morally indefensible because, frankly, it's not like uh, uh, like um, Twitter or uh, YouTube or Facebook and so on. They uh, they uh, they allow you. Uh, I, I mean, they do push push a certain agenda on uh, uh, like a, a, a strongly anti-conservative one in the West and uh, uh, and a uh, disruptive one on on Russia in particular. And uh, one, one thing that people underestimate is that uh, Russia does have its own parallel IT ecosystem. So for Facebook, we have uh, Vkontakte. For um, for Google, we have uh, Yandex. If Google is 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 uh, blocked, it hasn't been so far. Uh, for Twitter, we have well, I mean Telegram. It's too much doubles as that. It's sort of sort of like uh, in between WhatsApp and uh, and Twitter. It fulfills both functions. Uh, so yeah, in that in that sense, it's not it it hasn't been a problem, and uh, uh, obviously there will be a fall in living standards uh, because if you uh, sort of um, cut away uh, economic trade flows in such an abrupt way, uh, then that's close to inevitable. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the uh, what Russia is doing is considering uh, specific sanctions uh, uh, on uh, uh, restrictions on on mineral exports. Uh, so the pain will be very much two way. Uh, that's that's the first thing. And secondly, uh, there's been uh, sort of uh, the seizure of the central bank's uh, uh, foreign assets. Uh, again, it's unclear to what extent uh, how much of it has been seized because uh, initial reports suggested up to sixty percent of it was seized. Uh, but then uh, uh, Draghi uh, said that there was actually very little left, and that the central bank had uh, had actually. Uh, repatriated a lot of those assets to Russia within the past half a year. Uh, so uh, it's unclear what's happening, what's happened. But uh, in any case, uh, uh, I don't think that this is a uh, if if it comes to outright seizures uh, of this of this nature that uh, the West will be an absolute winner, uh, because obviously there's lots of assets in in Russia as well that can be seized. Uh, in retaliation, in particular, the uh, uh, something like uh, ten billion dollars worth of airliners, which happen to be in the lease. So it's regrettable, I suppose, that it's happening, but uh, uh, it's not going to be. It's uh, I don't get the impression that it's going to be a, a one-way street. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, it's. It also seems like it's a bit of a, a dress rehearsal for kind of a strengthening of the the Russian civilization state. Uh, and kind of, you know, seeing how autonomous uh, a country like Russia can be. I mean, I know a country like Romania cannot be autonomous, but a country like Russia just might be. Um, do you see that as a as a factor in uh, in all of this? 
Uh, well, the, uh, I mean, if uh, the West uh, gives Russia no other choice uh, but to be autonomous, then yes, I think that Russia uh, will become autonomous and uh, there'll be a sort of like a modest uh, sort of permanent hit to uh, potential G- GDP on account of that. But on the other hand, uh, I mean, one thing I noticed, uh, uh, I mean, two points I want to make is that, uh, first of all, uh, for most sectors, it isn't actually that hard to develop uh, domestic equivalents, and uh, Russia does have them for most things, in fact. So even even Iran manages to run a commercial aviation sector, despite having been sort of blocked off from the West since 1980, pretty much. Uh, so they, yeah, I mean, they pretty much generate the whole thing, uh, but uh, it, it runs, uh, even if accident rates are high. Uh, well, I mean, Russia has uh, two uh, airliners of its own, the MC-21 and the Superjet, uh, which are currently made out of almost uh, exclusively Russian-produced components. Uh, so the aviation sector will, will be totally fine in the, in the long term. I don't see any problems. I noted the tech sector. Russia has uh, tech, big tech equivalents for all the major uh, Western networks. Uh, so that certainly isn't going to be an issue. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean, if a country like Iran, which has uh, 80, 80 million people and uh, a GDP that's I don't know, some, probably something like uh, uh, five or eight times uh, smaller than Russia's, uh, can sort of uh, run an economy that's uh, not actually that that much poorer than Turkey, say, then I don't really think that it's uh, reasonable to uh, imagine that uh, Russia will be some kind of wasteland. Uh, has a uh, like a population of uh, 150 million, uh, perhaps soon to become 190 million, uh, and, and an average IQ of uh, of uh, close to 100, and uh, which uh, produces something like 10 percent of the world's uh, critical resources. Yeah, what what do you think the um, impact of of Europe's kind of dependency on Russian energy is? You know, there's been a lot of talk about Nord Stream two, um, especially Germany's dependency now that they've phased out nuclear. Um, I mean, is is this a major factor in the conflict? Do you see that tying into it? You know, how how does it affect it? Uh, this is obviously uh, a factor, and uh, it puts a ceiling, I would say, to uh, the ultimate feasible uh, level of. Um, of divorce between uh, Russia and Europe, at least uh, until uh, Europe uh, gets back to energy independence. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is a take that I know that you agree with, that uh, uh, Europe, Germany in particular, has spent a lot of money on uh, uh, strange green fundables, uh, such as uh, uh, $500 billion, I think, on renewables in Germany alone over the past decade, uh, which Bush come to show for, have shown that they have, haven't been capable of uh, producing uh, reliable baseload power. And they were also genius enough to shut down their nuclear power complexes at the exact same time. So, I mean, it, it, European decision making actually does strike me as uh, highly emotional and irrational and very much reactive. So I allow that once the current hysteria passes, that they, for those, frankly, those exact same reasons might actually reverse quite a lot of things. The United United States actually seems much more rational in many respects. So, like Biden has been surprisingly, uh, like uh, uh, saying in this recent crisis, with his uh, sort of policies and pronouncements relative to Europe at any rate. Yeah, it seems so. I mean, uh, he he's made some very clear uh, pronouncements that NATO will not get involved in if the if the war is is contained in in Ukraine. Um, what Russia will see, will consider involvement, I guess, is a, is a different matter because there's a, there are a lot of, uh, as far as I understand, uh, a lot of weapons, a lot of things that are sneaking into Ukraine, which, you know, you could maybe interpret as an act of war. Uh, I don't know. Depends on, on how Putin in, would interpret something like that. I mean, I think it's pretty clearly de- delineated. I mean, uh, they're free to provision those weapons and uh, uh, Russia is free to blow them up when they, when they come into Ukraine. So that seems to be the... Uh, Common understanding. Uh, so, and if that remains the case, I don't, uh, I don't. Uh, the potential for escalation, I do think, is uh, is uh, largely contained. And even even similar story for those uh, those uh, the story of those NATO jets, which actually didn't come to anything, as I expected from the start. So, short of uh, actual an actual NATO country provisioning a base for them, which uh, which was not going to happen. 
then uh, yeah, I mean they could division those uh, those old jets. Uh, don't thankfully don't see the point of it because they'd be destroyed very quickly. Uh, but um, uh, if if if, if it's really necessary, I suppose, for PR purposes, then they could have done it. But in the end, uh, it seems that uh, Poland got cold feet anyway. So, yeah, it seems there's a lot of uh, PR moves and a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of narrative warfare, uh, but less so um, practical <laughs> measures, uh, rational measures. Um, but uh, there's also a, a, a relatively I don't know if it's a large contingent, but there's there are quite a few people who have traveled to Ukraine to be part of a kind of a Russian uh, of a Ukrainian voluntary army. Um, some of them are going back because <laughs> it, it seems to be a bit more uh, intense than they thought. I mean, what's what's your um, take on on the uh, on the the volunteers of Reddit? Uh, well, uh, good for them, I suppose. Uh, they're going to have some excitement in their lives. Uh, or- I suppose. Uh, I suppose that's the positive side of it. Uh, the negative side of it is that uh, it's obviously not a, uh, a sort of like low intensive war, like with previous conflicts, like the way in Iraq and so on, uh, where they sort of like the biggest threat was uh, was getting blown up uh, by an IED or something. Uh, and uh, they went facing overwhelming uh, artillery fire directed by drones and, uh, uh, and enemy air superiority. So obviously that's a very different kettle of fish, and it seems that many of them were not prepared to uh, uh, for for this kind of scenario. And yes, I mean a lot of them uh, seem to have either been killed or are, are going back. Yeah, it seems so. I think it's uh, it's it's one of those things that sounds like a, a you know in in the heat of the moment in the in the heat of social media sounds like a really good thing to do. And I think you know if people can offer uh, help to refugees or you know make donations, and I, I completely support that. But just you know thinking that you're Captain Marvel and or whatever Captain someone, <laughs> not that familiar with the canon, uh, you're going to. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean they're not going to be of much military use. I mean, even if. Uh, even if uh, the Ukrainian army military wasn't the uh, South Gant. Uh, because, uh, yeah, I mean, newbies uh, who, who who go to a conflict are not very useful, so they're in practice used like cannon fodder. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not making a political comparison, but uh, we, it's, it's well known that uh, uh, Muslim volunteers, in uh, Islamist volunteers in, from Western Europe who went to fight for ISIS, for instance, they were simply, many of them were simply like used as suicide bombers, right? Uh, so uh, these people are, are not considered to be of high worth and treated uh, as being quite disposable, unless they have extremely specific skill sets, which the vast majority of them do not. Yeah, and, and Call of Duty doesn't count. I'm sorry, guys. Um, I also wanted to ask you um, about life in Russia in general, because I feel like, the, you know, obviously Russia is a, is a bit of a black box. You know, the, the overwhelming um, information that people have is about, um, you know, the, the countries that, you know, stop stop at Russia's borders and Russia is just this, this huge dark eminence is constantly clawing at, at its borders to, to conquer more more land. Uh, I mean, what what is it like living in Russia? Because I, all I see is these comparison tables where it, it's clear that Russia is poorer than Germany. Yes. <laughs> yes, Russia is poorer than Germany. So is Romania. Um, why would someone choose to um, to live in Russia if it is poorer than Germany? Uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, there's two things I will say about this. Uh, first of all, if you want to carry out uh, like a sweeply kind of uh, lifestyle, stuff white people like, then uh, uh, I mean, frankly, uh, you could do that extremely easily in Moscow and St. Petersburg and frankly in uh, uh, in uh, most of the middle-sized towns by this stage. So all the uh, cafes and food courts and uh, like uh, uh, laser, laser tag uh, halls and uh, the skiing i mean there's a there's a native um, uh, like skiing complex in sochi which you can go to so you don't have to go to the alps so in terms of like uh, like uh, life uh, pleasures and entertainments i don't think uh, she is in any way inferior to western europe in a sense it's actually an extremely pleasant place to live in if, if you have money so i mean obviously uh Adjusted for purchasing power, even adjust, adjusting for purchasing power, uh, local salaries are lower than in Western Europe, probably something like three times lower than in Germany. Adjusting for uh, purchasing power parity, obviously a lot a lot more if, 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 if you're comparing it nominally. Uh, but still, even 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 with purchasing power, it's uh, 
It's uh, around two and a half times uh, public pool, I'd say. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, this uh, uh, isn't uh, an extremely bad performance relative to uh, the rest of uh, Eastern Europe, which was basically crippled by uh, communism, by central planning, essentially, uh, over the course of the previous century, and uh, frankly developing the uh, uh, complex industries that, uh, that allow local salaries to become very high as they have. I mean, Western Europe, Japan, and so on, I mean, they spend centuries on the normal capitalist development. So uh, this isn't going to be something that's done in a single generation. But if you have uh, access to foreign income or if you're in a, in a sort of very highly globalized sector, such as IT services, for instance, uh, then your salary, even in Russia, can, can be very comparable to global dates. And uh, since prices are much lower, uh, you would have a... Uh, higher realized quality, quality quality of life than you, you would on the same salary in, say, uh, London. Um, and can you just, um, I mean, what, what is the, the life of the, uh, the, of, of the, of the person of, <laughs> of whoever lives in Russia? Like, I mean, in the sense that, you know, is, is there, um, an, an overwhelming need to participate in politics like there is in the West? Like politics seems to be the, um, just the, the, an all-consuming obsession. It's a sport. It is entertainment. It is, you know, it's 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 permanent revolution. Um, does, is that feeling? Does that feeling exist in, in in Russia? I would say it's actually quite the opposite. The culture war is very uh, sort of um, uh, low key. I mean, you do have uh, uh, like uh, like uh, subcultures, I would say, uh, who are very strongly influenced by Western trends. Uh, so, for instance, there's a um, a uh, newly fangled, fangled sort of a, a feminist subculture, which is strongly influenced by uh, ideas of, of recent ideas of gender feminism that have been imported from the West. I mean, Russia has been equity feminist since the Soviet Union, basically, uh, like in terms of economic opportunities and so on. Uh, but in terms of uh, this sort of like much more radical reimagining uh, that uh, uh, that men are women and so on. I mean. I mean, yes, there's some sub, some subcultures exist here which uh, which propound that kind of view, but they're marginal, and uh, society at large ignores them. Uh, and you also have the libertarian movement, uh, which seems to be a very uh, very heavily influenced by the manosphere for by like Mikhail Sviatov. So sort of like a, basically anime plus a manosphere plus uh, yeah, those uh, traditional like the battalion thinkers like Mises and so on. Uh, so yeah, you have that kind of subculture, uh, but uh, again, it's pretty marginal at, at that. Uh, so uh, in terms of in terms of normal people's interests in politics, I would say that they're very, uh, very uh, centrist in the uh, sense of where we want, we just want to grill uh, sense, like in that, in that centrist uh, meme. Yeah, so in, compared to the direction that Western Europe is going towards, uh, Russia tends to be more more conservative. Would, would Russians describe themselves as such, or? I mean, relative uh, to the West. I mean, uh, if, if I mean, if you look at uh, sort of uh, the big culture war issues, uh, then I would imagine so. Yes. Uh, so I mean, one example would I, I suppose be gay marriage, uh, which. Uh, uh, according to opinion polls, something like 15% of Russians support uh, versus it being now being the majority, uh, solid majority in, in uh, Western Europe and the US. So one interesting point I made in, in a recent article is that, in my opinion, social attitudes are extremely malleable. So uh, about 15 years ago, support for gay marriage in, in Russia, in Poland, and in the most conservative US states, such as Utah, they were about equal at around 20% or something like that. And uh, it was approaching like a third of the population in, in like big cities like Moscow, St. Petersburg. And since then, there's been a sort of uh, sharp divergence because now it's uh, more than 50% in Utah, it's uh, more than 40% in Poland, and it, it's gone down to 10 to 15% in, uh, in, uh, in Russia, simply because uh, gay marriage has been sort of been made one of the focal points around which uh, Russian politicians have decided to uh, uh, wage a culture war to rebrand themselves as different from being the West. Uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, in this sense, uh, 
there has been a sort of a, a state-directed move towards towards a conservative term, turn, as some scholars have turned have turned it uh, in the 2010s, uh, that uh, has resulted in this sort of uh, divergence from from Western norms. And uh, but I allow that it might not, it might have acquired its own dynamic because simply the uh, uh, like gay marriage is one thing. I mean, I'm a millennium, millennium myself. I can understand gay marriage and I can understand debates around gay marriage. I mean, I, I mean, I was. Uh, like completely okay with like civil partnerships and so on uh, between gays, like when I was living in the West. Uh, so I didn't think it would be a big deal. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, the new stuff that's coming out, like the uh, the whole uh, the thing with the uh, with the transition and uh, and uh, uh, men and uh, uh, trans women and women's sports and so so on. This is uh, as a millennial, I can no longer understand that, and it's not something I want to understand. Uh, it's uh, that's that's sort of like a for the zoomers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's their revolution. <laughs> um you uh you have an article I think this was from 2019. It's a very expansive article about what's what's going on in Russia. What what was going on in Russia back then which is very uh is a good reflection on what's going on right now. And you describe the the three ages of Putinism and I, I want you to maybe go into this because uh, I'll quote from the article. Um the first age of Putinism in the 2000s was marked by unideological technocracy. Uh in parenthesis this is essentially what we've went through in in Romania as well. Um uh, and its second age during the 2010s was defined by conservative entrenchment. We're slowly kind of seeing some stuff like that here, but not not too much. We're too close to Europe. Uh, and so I believe that the third age, the 2020s, will be defined by the political ascent of ethno-aware as distinct from ethno-nationalist, Russian nationalism. So we are now in the 20, 2010s. Yes. Uh, this was an extremely controversial point when I, when I made it amongst uh, like uh, even Russian nationalist acquaintances. Uh, but I do think that it's been borne out, and I mean not just in Putin's rhetoric around this whole Ukraine, uh, Ukraine thing, but also to do with immigration policy, uh, which has become uh, progressively more and more uh, loaded towards uh, simply uh, uh, being aimed at attacking Russians uh, uh, back, as, as opposed to uh, Central Asians. So uh, uh, an increasing retreat from the Soviet conception uh, of. Uh, of elderly uh, peoples and so on, and uh, even even like like on the culture war front, uh, the one like recent amusing anecdote uh, is that uh, there was some uh, uh, discrimination case launched against uh, Nike because they were only using black people in advertisements for their clothes in Russia, and so the uh, point of the suit was that it didn't affect the country's demographics. So um, yeah, I mean you have. Things like this happening in Russia, which I certainly wasn't expecting uh, five years ago, when, uh, uh, when frankly, uh, like nationalists were being, uh, uh, well, at best marginal, uh, at worst uh, actively being uh, prosecuted by the state. Uh, so yes, I mean in that respect, it was a pretty, pretty sharp reversal, but uh, but it's encouraging because uh, uh, I. Uh, well, I mean, I, I agree with it. I, I do not think that uh, uh, ultimately Africa has a billion people and it's going to have four billion people at the end of the century, according to UN projections. And uh, even 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 if like 10% of that overspilled into Europe, for instance, then it's going to be a 50-50 sort of uh, uh, Euro-African uh, polity in, in demographic terms. And uh, uh, I don't think that will be the best thing for the welfare of the indigenous populations. And uh, I hope that uh, that uh, Russia at any rate can insulate itself from that. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing that a lot of people um, across Europe are missing. It's that, you know, it's, it's not just... Uh, the fact that, that Russia is consolidating kind of the civilization state and it is, you know, attracting, uh, I mean, attracting or conquering the areas around it to, to be in its, at least in its sphere of influence uh, is one thing. But the, the bigger story here is the, the death of the West, because, you know, all of this, you know, there, there are power vacuums appearing now that, uh, that just did not exist uh, 
in you know 10 years before 15 years before and there's also a lot of change in terms of of what's i feel like what's allowed to be said nowadays like a lot of people who used to be you know uh, on usenet or you know just in in complete uh, the darkest recesses of forums with the most you know seven layers of anonymity are now on uh, tucker carlson <laughs> you know there's a lot of you know and tucker carlson is the, the biggest show on earth actually if you don't count you know the joe rogan experience which also has some spicy stuff on there so um I feel like there's definitely a lot changing in this direction and a lot of things like nationalism, uh, a lot of ideas that were, you know, relegated to the darkness are now coming up. Um, part, partly what I do on this podcast was, you know, talk to, to people like that. I mean, how, how does, uh, has this been feeling from your perspective? You are one of the kind of the, the Ur posters in, in the space. You, as I said, very spicy, very, very deeply thought out uh, ideas uh, in, in one of the, the, the most dangerous field on earth in intelligence research. Um, and how, how does it feel for you to, um, I mean, do, do you see this happening? Is there, is there more space to speak about these things? Uh, well, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some contradictory things happening. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you do have uh, uh, the Tucker Carlson phenomenon, and uh, even at this, uh, even as uh, the uh, well, I mean, you had you had SGW hysterics uh, like uh, like Lily Flaminant back in the Trump era. Uh, since then, they've sort of died out, but that's largely because they've become normalized. So SGW is is now essentially conservatism. Uh, well, going by the sort of like, if you if you look at conservatism as essentially a, as a phenomenon that doesn't have intrinsic value, but merely describes the uh, uh, social baseline, essentially. Uh, so, in in this sense, yeah, I mean, uh, you you do have some very contradictory trends happening now, which uh, which I can't really disentangle right now. So obviously, uh, there's pretty uh, big restrictions on what you can say uh, in in uh, on Twitter and so on on social media, and uh, moreover, some of what you say can can in fact uh, have uh, social persecutions, damnifications, uh, um, uh, uh, such as the stories of people like this who've been cut off from Airbnb and uh, Uber and so on. And since these sort of services are very much uh, uh, central to uh, life these days, it's uh, Let's say base basically translates to economic sanctions, uh, but um, uh, but yes, at the same time you also have uh, uh, you also have the emergence of uh, sort of decentralized uh, networks, which which I'm very uh, sort of interested in, in observing. So I don't. Uh, I, I mean, frankly, I think the problem with big tech is that it's always, uh, as as it is built now, it's always going to be centralized, and you have you have copycats, which uh, or competitors like Twitter killers and so on, like Gap and uh, like the Rumble and like these various various like sort of uh, competitors to uh, uh, to them like Padlet. Uh, but the problem is that first they're, all, they're also centralized, so uh, they're not intrinsically more censorship resistant uh, than, than the big, the big, the existing giants. And the other problem is that uh, they also have a strong echo cham- chamber effect because why would you be on Gab? Uh, I mean, you you'd only be on there to follow people like Anglin pretty much, right? Uh, so um, uh, and uh, like like if if you want to follow like. Uh, like uh, mainstream people, like they, they have no particular reason to to go to Gab, right? Uh, so you have like a very strong echo effect there. So I don't think much is going to happen there. But what what I am what I am uh, sort of relatively bullish about is this is the emergence of the uh, centralized networks uh, such as Outbit or Lens, which is a project on uh, on Matic. Uh, so. Uh, um, like in line with the uh, with the crypto revolution, which uh, which is uh, making possible the emergence of decentralized finance, and uh, uh, basically might become significantly harder to uh, uh, to apply uh, various sort of personal financial and economic sanctions, which they are de facto. Uh, once you have these alternate uh, structures set up, so like uh, if you have uh, access to to DeFi, if it becomes something more than just like the very experimental uh, stage that it is now, but becomes something real. Uh, if uh, you have uh, uh, if you have DAOs which which can finance controversial research, so there's actually a DAO which uh, which uh, finances life extension research called VitaDAO. So one thing I've been mulling over is why not set up a DAO to uh, fund HPT research, for instance. 
uh, might be more reliable than uh, relying on on centralized uh, institutions such as the Pioneer Fund, uh, which unfortunately was uh, uh, pillaged uh, because uh, uh, of them. Uh, left left its assets to his uh, son, who was a commie, and obviously wasn't interested in continuing uh, to finance uh, these kind of thinkers. But yeah, I mean, if you if you do it to a DAO uh, where, where you have decentralized control over it by by through stakeholders, then that, that kind of thing will be much harder to pull off. So in this sense, yeah, I mean, uh, I uh, I think that's not in the uh, uh, in the kings of this world, uh, but. Uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe it trust in the uh, uh, sort of like the the centralized solutions that are being developed. Yeah, there's there's a lot uh, coming up on the horizon. Um, I, all, I I just think at least in in the circles that I'm in, and maybe this is just my echo chamber as well, because I am in pretty much a self made echo chamber. Uh, it it does feel like um, even in the last year or so, things have, are loosening up a little bit in terms of what's what's allowed to be said. Maybe in in a very Straussian way, you know, uh, you don't get anywhere by saying a lot of things uh, in an obvious, you know, dumbed down mm-hmm. fashion. But if you know how to express yourself so that your interlocutor understands your acronyms <laughs> or, you know, the things that uh, that you use uh, as shorthand, uh, it is pretty, it, it seems to be pretty easy to communicate things that are a bit spicy. Um, but that also might be temporary. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but it feels like the eye of Sauron is is too busy with other things or other people at the at the moment. But yeah, this is uh, as I said, it's it's probably better to rely on on decentralized uh, methods rather than you know uh, cont- you know bet on this trend continuing. Um, a- another subject that I wanted to discuss with you because I know uh, I feel like we have convergent views on on this is the fertility crisis. Like the world has stopped. Uh, replicating people mm-hmm. have stopped having babies. Uh, I mean, why? Why? What is what is the reason for this? Because this is a phenomenon across the world. Um, what what's kind of the the core uh, problem that we're encountering here? Uh, well, I mean, if you look at it from a, a macro historical perspective, you had the demographic transition, and uh, you also had a um, the removal of economic incentives for this, because I mean, yes, in traditional societies, uh, uh, you needed more hands at the farm. Uh, so if you have uh, uh, population standard to, to converge to the carrying capacity of the land and so on, obviously all of that changed uh, with urbanization, in industrialization and so forth. And the total fertility rate across, across vast waves of the industrialized world is now down 1.5. And it's actually pretty, pretty interesting uh, to, to like the extent to which it, it, it frankly has converged. So um, like it seems that um, like pre, even previous differences, so like a, a generation ago, uh, the US was notably more fertile than Western Europe, probably because of, uh, of uh, religious reasons. There were more relig- highly religious people in the US. Uh, but now it's basically U.S. whites around 1.5 or 1.6, uh, Russians also 1.5, Germans 1.5, uh, the English 1.5, uh, Poles 1.3, uh, the French 1.8, I think, or something. So yeah, pretty, uh, pretty high. I mean, if you're talking about that, I think French. But um, uh, but, but yeah, uh, there's there's been this uh, this convergence, and uh, why? Well, I mean. Uh, you can speculate uh, on the various reasons why that happened. But my specific prediction is that this is going to be a uh, uh, temporary state of affairs. Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't agree with uh, DACO that it's going to be something terminal. And uh, the reason is pretty simple. It's because natalism, uh, so like natalist sentiment, like any other factor of personality, is, uh, uh, is heritable. And it's uh, also extremely competitive. Well, by definition, because I mean, if you want to have kids and have kids, then yes, I mean, you know, those those kids will will also want to have kids more than the sort of like the baseline average. Uh, so, uh, in my opinion, so long as culture remains remains uh, uh, relatively stable, uh, which it hasn't been for the past century, you've you've, you've had uh, cultural innovations that were, uh, for the most part, uh, strongly anti-natalist. And uh, if you don't have major technological discontinuities, 
then uh, my strong uh, uh, supposition is that over time, the uh, uh, population-wide natalism quotient is going to keep going up. And so the current state of uh, sub-replacement level fertility rates is going to reverse itself. Uh, so, um, I mean, I've speculated uh, uh, on, on the scenario at length in a series of uh, uh, articles about it called The Age of Malthusian Industrialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I agree with your outlook. I think there's definitely a, um, like you said, a heritable uh, component of this, though, um, like you said, social attitudes are also highly contagious and malleable. And I feel like a big part of this is uh, is partly in part of social, but also, like you said, the incentives for having children. I mean, children are a cost now. They're not a, uh, a benefit, you know, with each additional child you incur, uh, what was that? The, the number that's been paraded around like 200, $250,000, uh, lifetime uh, investment in a child that you're, you probably won't see, won't see back. Mm-hmm. So I think it's also this perspective, maybe, um, the idea that, um, life is a kind of a cost benefit analysis where you have to end out on top. I think this, this might also be heritable as well. Like I think this, Mm -hmm. this idea that um, I I don't even know what to call it kind of uh, utilitarian thinking (laughs) might be, might be something that is going to be bred out of the population. Cause if you're the kind of person who does, you know, makes life decisions based on napkin calculations of, you know, what's in it for you, you're probably not the kind of person who's going to benefit from a a huge family. Cause uh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a it's it's a tough it's a tough situation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, over the long term, I do think that this problem is going to be self dissolving almost by definition. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, we can uh, uh, I mean to uh, adapt equip from economics world finance world. You might uh, might uh, long term might be much longer than you can domain solvent, right? Sort of like demographic ethnographic terms. So as, as regards uh, uh, more short-term uh, sort of perspectives, I think that, frankly, there's, uh, there's two things, I, I think, that two or three things that work. I mean, uh, first of all, uh, you uh, it's uh, uh, cash payments, I mean, do have a, at least a marginal effect, at least uh, in Russia, they seem to have uh, uh, the TFR by down to 0.2 children above what it would have been without them, which is not a big deal, which is not a huge effect, but uh, uh, it, it adds up over, over the years. And frankly, I, I, mean, I mean, the uh, Scandinavian sort of social democracies in Scandinavia and France, they've actually been pretty demographically successful. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, these sort of like, uh, like one of the areas in which I'm sort of on the... Uh, Left liberal side of the political spectrum is uh, is in relation uh, in the, in relation to sort of uh, state support for things like um, like uh, paid leave and uh, 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 like uh, work life balance policies and so on. So I think I think those are good things. I mean, that just because you're right wing on on many things doesn't mean you have to signal against things that uh, uh, seem to work. And uh, yeah, the second the second thing I think that might be pretty uh, uh, concerning is uh, uh, is the latest sort of uh, uh, cultural trend, which is uh, uh, basically the child free movement. Uh, which uh, uh, I, I mean, there's a lot of people who uh, seem to be taking that seriously and not having children simply because they are sort of like uh, they have nightmare visions of uh, of uh, uh, the climate going haywire and uh, down in Indonesia. 30 years or something like that. I mean, one person literally said that that, uh, that I'm a maniac, that Indonesia is going to literally down in 30 years. But, but whatever. But you have a lot of these people with very with pretty strange ideas uh, who, and uh, it's, it's, I mean, as a meme, it's, it's a successful one. And uh, if, uh, if, if it's sort of like a, uh, starts to affect a significant percentage of the population, then again, it's going to have a uh, sort of a significant, uh, significant effect on, uh, uh, on uh, sort of fertility outcomes. The third, the third, the third thing I suppose is that you could become much more religious, uh, but uh, I don't really know how you can go about like implementing that as policy. Uh, so that's sort of beyond my ken. Israel is extremely successful. Israel is basically the only uh, uh, industrialized, developed country with a very much a uh, above 
so the placement level, right? CFAT, uh, something like three children per woman. And it's not just the Haredim uh, who have a lot of children. It's even even secularists, dailies have like 1.9 or something like that, which is very extremely good by European standards. Uh, so how they do that? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's various theories about that. Uh, possibly, ironically, because of the stress from the Intifada and the stress of sort of like uh, like the impression that they're surrounded by hostile neighbors and that uh, a lot of them were killed in the 20th century by people who uh, wanted to get rid of them. Maybe that sort of ironically uh, contributes uh, to that. But uh, yeah, these are all speculations. But if you could replicate whatever's happening in Israel, then uh, uh, yeah, that, that would basically be a huge difference, uh, base, basically a, a plus one addition to the TFR. Yeah, it's uh, Israel itself is is a civilization state, and like you said, it's a it's a kind of a in in danger. At least it sees, sees itself as in danger uh, of, of of disappearing. So I can guess that's a that's a good motivator. I mean, Russia is also now a civilization state, or it uh, it's aspiring towards uh, towards that state. So who knows? Maybe the fertility effects will will kick in as well, and you'll you'll enjoy the. the extreme above replacement fertility soon. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you the question of the show. This is a question that everyone gets asked on the show. Um, is there a, uh, a subversive thinker, uh, this could be a writer, a researcher, um, that was uh, influential in, in your thinking uh, that you think is uh, is very much underrated, that people should look up, should read more of? Uh, uh, okay. Uh, a subversive who strongly influenced me. Yes, and that you think is underrated. Oh, and underdated. Uh, okay, yeah. Well, I mean, I can, uh, uh, I can certainly recommend, uh, uh, like, having uh, Doco on the show if, uh, uh, if you uh, haven't had him already. He was the first guest of the podcast. <laughs> the first. Guest, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that's 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 good to hear. Uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, um, uh, people who have influenced. I mean, I mean, I mean a bunch of versions, uh, obviously, but uh, might not be too realistic. So basically, the um, um, the person who made Russian nationalism cool amongst many Russian millennials and Zoomers, and who is practically unknown in the West, unfortunately, he he died a few months ago uh, at a young age. Uh, but yeah, he got the Sweden, uh, so. Uh, I mean, if you want to sort of like understand how uh, the way in which sort of like Russian nationalism became something that was sort of endorsed by 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 like like expats, some expat techies, for instance, uh, then that would be one person to look into and uh, uh, and uh, research if if you speak Russian. But obviously, I can't uh, not realistic to invite a dead person. <laughs> Uh, to, to a show. Yeah. Um, who else? Um, can't can't really uh, think of any. I mean, frankly, I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of people with uh, I would say with uh, with sort of uh, who are respectable, but who have uh, like uh, I don't know somebody like Adam Tuza, for instance, uh, who uh, that that his book on uh, the economics of uh, of Nazi Germany in World War Two and sort of like uh, made a big difference to how I uh, uh, like viewed the history of World War Two. Entirely mainstream historian, but uh, uh, some very interesting uh, and unexpected uh, uh, sort of observations uh, there. So yeah, probably speaking of the past two years or so, uh, that that I suppose was a big influence. But yeah, let, let me let me think some more about this, and perhaps uh, perhaps I'll come back to you. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, there. There's a quite a, a, a huge um, subculture of, of of dissident thinkers in, in our in our sphere, and my um, my plan is to to talk to everyone. <laughs> so Rocco, I think we I was friendly with Rocco before getting on Twitter. We I we I knew Rocco off Facebook way back. So mm-hmm. he was the most natural first guest that I could have on the show because he would answer my messages even when I was like not interesting and had like two followers. So that was, uh, that was easy. Uh, but yeah, I've, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really very happy that you, you came on. This was a long time in the making. As I said, I've been, I've been reading your work since 
for a long time, uh, as, as should, uh, as should anyone who, uh, who is watching this. Um, and I also want to point everyone to the powerful take Substack um, at, uh, acarlin.substack.com. Uh, is there any other thing or place that people should go to? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, my primary resource. Uh, so the Substack is my primary blog right now, uh, as well as my Twitter. Uh, but if you want to, uh, uh sort of, um, uh, know where to start, I suppose. Uh, you could go to acadlin.com, which is my personal web website. And the front page contains uh, just a list of my, what I consider to be my, my best and most interesting articles uh, from on various topics, uh, Russia, uh, HBTIQ, and some more out there things like the Katechan hypothesis. Uh, my sort of, uh, uh, like, a, one of my probably my most original contribution to philosophy and uh, a, uh, beyond the front page there's also the start here section at the top where you have a, uh, where you have a sort of um, a uh, organized uh, list of, of articles which which you can browse and it's more more convenient than uh, uh, doing that uh, through the substack or going to my old blogs uh, in various places it's just a centralized depository no, that's a that's a really uh, a really good function of the blog, and and also it's yeah it's the greatest hits, and it's very clearly accessible when you when you get there. So it's uh, it's super useful. So yes, please do start there. Uh, follow uh, Anatoly on Twitter. Uh, sign up to the Substack, uh, and uh, I want to thank you again for coming on. This was very very lovely to speak to you. All right. Yes. Likewise, and uh, I enjoyed it a lot as well. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it. And maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you. <laughs>